This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is celebrating Livingston, Louisiana's Lane Hardy, the winner of season 17 of American Idol, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Little Rock Animal Village is waiving adoption fees Tuesday, May 21st through Friday, May 24th to cope with the influx of puppies and kittens that have been taken into the shelter in the past week. They're also looking for foster homes for puppies and kittens who are too young to be spayed or neutered and then adopted. You can visit their page on Facebook or call 501-376-3067 to learn more about fostering. Tonight, we're talking to Terry Hobbs and Vicki Edwards about their book, Box Full of Nightmares which is a memoir of the 19, aftermath of the 1993 murders of Steve Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore in West Memphis, Arkansas. We're a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael, Terry, and Vicki. Good evening. Good, good evening, Miss Lisa. <laughs> um, and also, I wanted to I wanted to mention um, last week uh, the world lost Tim Conway, who was a phenomenal comedian, comedic actor, uh, best known for his characters on the Carol Burnett Show, The Oldest Man, and Mr. Tudball. He was Ensign Parker on Mikhail's Navy. Um, and he also founded or co-founded a, uh, injured jockeys aid, uh, charity back in the 1990s, I believe. So he was a, a fan of horse racing, uh, and he will be missed. And we also lost Grumpy Cat, Tater, 
who passed away last week. And that's my that was definitely a, <laughs> my news. That, that was definitely a tough week. Oh, I wanted to point out because you know we have the whole Arkansas, uh, Louisiana thing going on. I'm just saying I noticed how you threw in there about the American Idol thing, but you know we currently have somebody competing on The Voice. I'm just saying Arkansas is totally better than Louisiana. When he or she wins, I will proudly announce it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> And Lane's from Livingston Parish, which is over on the North Shore. So we're going to lay claim to him in New Orleans. Then I have Mr. Michael, the Ravenback. Pardon? Sound like Mr. Michael, the Razorback. Yes, sir, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... Um, tonight we're going to talk about uh, Carrie and Vicky's book, Box Full of Nightmares, which are Terry's memoirs of the aftermath of the murders of his stepson, Steve Branch, his two friends, Christopher Byers and Michael Moore, which happened in 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. I hate referring it to it as a West Memphis 3 because it's not about them. It's about... Steve, Chris, and Michael. Um, you know, Lisa, not to interrupt you and not to interrupt that thing, I've always thought about it. I, I actually used to get confused in my younger days. I actually thought the West Memphis Three was referring to the victims and not the actual uh, accused. I never knew that it was actually until I sat down and watched uh, Paradise Lost that I knew that it was actually referring to those three instead. Yes. So that's just one of the, you know, one of the things in our criminal justice culture, especially now where so many people want to uh, minimize the victims and make it look like the people who've been convicted are the victims. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, and, uh, real quick, real quick, um, and I don't mean to interrupt you again, but uh, you know who, Mr. Brad, uh, just messaged me. He's actually listening to the show. He said he just wants to ask one quick question of y'all real quick, and then he said he just wants to listen. Is that okay if we go ahead and grab his question? Sure. Sure. Okay, let me go ahead and bring him on. Brad, can you hear us? Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Terry Hobbs and, and Miss Vicki, uh, it's nice to actually talk with you guys. Um, I listened to a show that you guys did, I would uh, assume it was prior to May 1st, because I believe, Vicki, you were – doing some kind of deal in Hot Springs with the book uh, on the 1st of May. Yeah. I, I don't recall the, the, the podcast that I was actually listening to. Uh, and you don't have to answer it now. If, I know that Lisa has a, a, a you know an itinerary that she wants to kind of go with, so I don't want to throw it off the tracks. But I did want to ask at some point, uh, with, with the bias in the Paradise Lost films leading more towards 
uh, Damien and, and uh, those guys. Do you, it, Terry? Did you um, were you? I know you were. You had to be upset about the Paradise loss, but at the same time, it did serve a purpose to a degree to get some, you know, notoriety and and at least get, you know, your stepson and the other two boys, you know, out there in the national news so that, um, you know, they wouldn't be just, you know, a forgotten local state murder, I guess, if, if maybe, Lisa, you can clean that que- uh, that question up. But I just wondered, you know, do you – have, uh, you know, do you, at the same time you have I'm no disregard for the film because of its bias, uh, you know, do you, is there any kind of thing where you go, you know, I'm, I am kind of glad they made that, though, that so that my son and, and his friends will be memorialized and remembered by the nation for the tragic loss that they that they had to endure and suffer? Well, I'll have to say this. There was a time when we didn't want uh, the film crews hanging around, and anything that they've done over the years, you know, they like you said, they've been a little biased. And, and as far as memorializing or the boys, you know, they'll always be in, in our heart. And, you know, for what people has done with the case, you know, they've almost written the boys off, you know, and they've, uh, you know, it's all about the other three, you know, and I think that shouldn't have never came up or, or even done. But, no, the boys will always be remembered, you know, in the hearts of real people and as being the real victims. Oh, absolutely. And I and I appreciate your answer. I just, uh, I had always wondered that. I know that, that, um, you know, when I first watched them, it was they did a really good job at what they were trying to do. But uh, as you dig deeper into the case, you know, you're the it leaves little doubt as to what really occurred uh, as far as the premise. Now, what actually all occurred that night, we'll never probably ever know. But uh, you know, again, my heart goes out to you guys and, and the Moors and 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 all for for what you guys have had to suffer. So, uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, answer my question, sir. Well, sure. Thank you. I want to. I want to add to that. Um, so yes, it did bring some notoriety to the case, and it did let the three uh, children become not forgotten. But in actuality, the three children were never going to be forgotten. Their families, the friends, the whole city of West Memphis was always going to remember them, and all that notoriety tended to do was get three convicted murderers. Let out of prison. I concur. And it's drawn attention to West Memphis that, you know, I mean, uh, Terry, I think you posted a video on May 5th. You went to the Weaver Reading Grove, and people have once again defaced the. Uh, the plaque or memorial stone for Chris, Michael, and Steve. Uh, There was red paint, looked like they had just tried to clean it off. And there was, you know, graffiti written on the, on the, on the stone. And that's, you know, that's not honoring the boys. I know. And 
And again, they they signed it. The ones that done it signed it. And the red was red wax. And I don't know what was going through their mind, but you know, I don't understand. Yeah, it was heartbreaking to go over there and see that. And I, I go there every year and to pay respect to all three of the boys and do something for them. You know, it's about all you can do, and it's heartbreaking to go there. But I do that every year for them, do something. Right. <clears throat> well, right. Lisa, well, thank I you, want, Brad. I want to jump real yeah. quick. Uh, I just wanted to mention, myself and uh, Brad have been to that site before, and number one, it's just it's surreal how much it's changed. Obviously, I was about three years old when it actually happened, so I have no knowledge past what Paradise Lost showed me of the area then. Number one, it's just surreal how much it's changed from the film footage that they used. And then also, I want to take a moment and just say, in my personal opinion, how sick that is, no matter you know, what side you fall on or what have you, to do that to a memorial for three young boys who were brutally have their lives ended, that's just sick. And those people, I know they won't be because the type of people that would do something like that don't care, but that's absolutely sick and disgusting, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves. I totally agree. And I hope they feel it. Well, hopefully they'll put video or something up and start catching the people. Because I, when I lived there, I lived there from 2001 to 2010. And, I mean, many times we'd go, we'd go by there and see, you know, graffiti that proclaimed the innocence of Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly. And it's like that, that's not what this is about. Right. The Reading Grove is not about them. Don't bring that here. And over the years, it just never stopped. Some people just um, don't get it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Correct. And that's a shame. It's a shame. So, well, again, thank you, Brad. <clears throat> Keep listening. And uh, first, I want to let uh, Terry and Vicky kind of introduce themselves and give us all a little background on each of you. Um We'll go with ladies first. So, Vicki, if you could just give us a little bit of your background, where you're from, uh, what you've done. Okay. Well, um, uh, we've lived in Hot Springs for close to 26 years now. And uh, Carrie also used to live in Hot Springs a long time ago. So, uh I, of course, known Terry all my life because we're cousins, but in 2005, uh, it was suggested that I ask him if we, if I could write his story. At that point in time, my writing tended to be more for myself and for blogging, and I had never written an actual book, although I'd read a bunch and always thought I could do better. It was a lot harder than I thought. 
Um, so <laughs> it took Terry and I a little bit of time, and uh, about a year later, we started working on it. So this book had been in the works roughly since 2006. It had some pauses. It had times where we worked on it really hard. In the meantime, while I was working with Terry, I completed a, uh, a degree in creative writing and literature, and I think that really helped me in putting the book together. In hindsight, I, I could see a lot of things that needed changed, and so I changed changed things and took a couple of times of submitting it before it was actually accepted. So background-wise, I, I do have a background in, in writing. A lot of that's come across, you know, recently. Uh, writing Carrie's perspective from, from my point of view was a little challenging to tackle simply because that's not how most biographies or autobiographies are written and most memoirs are written by the person. So there, there were some kinks to work out before we got there. Um, since writing Carrie's book, I've had a, a state trooper contact me that escorted Jesse Miskelly to and from the trials, and he's asked to meet with me and wants to tell me about what he learned escorting Jesse Miskelly. And I have that probably coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited to hear what else we can add to this story from somebody else's perspective. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I, I would so love too. to be a fly <laughs> on the wall for that. <laughs> so well, now I'm I was curious visiting with them. Yes, um, I was curious, Vicky. Are you on a cousin on mom's side or dad's side? Our dads are brothers. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so I have lots of cousins on my mom's side, but none on my dad's because he was an only child. <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. So, well, I have, <laughs> I have cousins from my, uh, my great aunt. But, yeah, so, and then my mom was from a, her father and mother were from huge families, so I've got cousins I've never met yet. So, um, that's always interested me, <laughs> though, the relationships. Uh, what about Carrie? Tell us a little bit about yourself. You, not the the person who's been uh, portrayed in the media and by the supporter movement. That's correct. My name is Terry Hobbs, and tomorrow I'll be 61 years old and just happy to make it. And I've been uh, been a working man all my life. You know, I've come from a working family. And... You know, I lived in and around West Memphis and Memphis since 1987. And after 1993, we moved from there to West to Memphis. Been here ever since. And all I do is work, write music, play music, and sing my music. And you can follow me on YouTube where I post my music. And that's great. Yeah, it is. There's some really, there's some personal songs on there that addresses 
some things that you know people should should stop and listen to. <clears throat> and you know, I just I'm not the person that you know people might think. Actually, I'm a happy-go-lucky type of dude. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get a kick out of just being me sometimes. Says his life. Yeah. But we're good, yeah. good Southern folks that, you know, we've been drugged into something that is so ter- so tragic and so terrible, you know. But, you know, as we fight to maintain our lifestyle, it's a challenge. I won't. I will say that it's it's tough, you know. But we're determined to keep going, you know. As far as the book, you know, I started doing some journals years ago. I just couldn't believe things that I would see, read, hear, and you know, portraying me as this when all all the time I knew it was nothing like me. So I'm gonna keep on being me. And enjoying what I can in my life, and you know, move forward, look back every once in a while, visit, and you know, keep on living. Yeah, I know when you and I met, one of the impressions I had of you uh, when we met, we went to the Merrill Leverett Devil's Knot book signing in Memphis, and then uh, you and Pam were together and. Sean and I came over to the house and we spent some time together. Um, one of the things I thought you were very stoic, but boy, when you have something to say, you say it. Yeah, I try to mind my own business. <laughs> but when right. you wake, when you wake me up, you want to talk? Well, I'll talk. Yeah, you know, and you and I had talked about your journals. And I, you know, I was really excited to hear that you had finally found the person that could collaborate with you on bringing those to light. Because you and I had talked about it, and I thought it would be a great thing. Of course, this was in the days when Mark Byers was still the prime suspect. Because mm-hmm. that was back in 2003. But... uh so well, that was the, that was a very doing the journals was not easy. I mean, it was it puts a strain on you. It takes a toll on you. And I would st- now I'll say this: I'll start a journal and you know start a story and get into it and just be pouring my heart out. And then I I would see what it was doing to me, you know. And I'd have to take some time off. I couldn't finish it. You know, I wouldn't want to start back where I left off at. I'd want to start on something else that was going on. You know, just to try to get some good bits and pieces out there. You know, and and the box was, you know, pretty full. And there's more. You know, you wouldn't believe what's still going on. Correct. Yeah. I got a good one to tell one of these days, you know, about last year. Now, many people have heard about it, but some have. And it's just unbelievable what keeps happening. And for what reason? I don't, I'm not sure. 
I honestly believe that they have to continue giving the public the appearance of innocence. So every time you think that it's done, they come up with something, oh, we have new evidence or or there's a new investigation or, you know, somebody's come in from Michigan and starts asking questions, and it just brings it all back to the surface. Uh, but I think that's for them to keep because it's a money-making operation. Right. Right. And Plain and simple. It's about. it's about money. So, but uh, I wanted to do a little overview of May 5th and 6th, 1993. Uh, to the best of your recollection – of what, you know, what happened, not so much the murders themselves, but just what the day was for you and for Pam and and Amanda. Right. It was a normal day like any other. You get up, you go to work, you come home to be your family. You know, prior to May the 5th, that's how we lived. Come along May the 5th, you know, who would have thought it was going to be any different? You know, you get up, you go to work, you come home, kids are out playing, wife's in there cooking supper, uh, another one, the, the Amanda's in the bedroom playing or watching videos or playing videos and, you know, never, you know, just thought it was another day. You know, and as we sit there and you know, waited for Stevie to come home. He never came home. And so that was not normal. And so, you know, we'd get up and take Pam to work, me and Amanda, and, you know, go about our stop over at the Moore's house and, you know, see if they was over there. That's who they was off riding bicycles with. And, you know, and just never came home that day. And, and who? No one would have thought any of this. You know, at least we didn't. But <laughs> it was really something. It was a different day than any other. And we just, you know, sometimes you're dealt a hand that you don't know how to handle, and that's probably uh, what happened. Uh, you know, we. I don't know how to, how to say it. You, you just didn't expect nothing to happen. And right, right. Yeah. And, you know, like, like when Pam left for work, Steve was supposed to be home, but he hadn't come home, which for an eight-year-old child out riding bikes is not an unusual occurrence. Right. You know, they lose track of time. They're having fun. And, and then they come home the with their tail between their legs later. Yeah, and he <laughs> just got the bike, you know, and he was happy and out riding his bike. Well, let him ride, you know. I understand that. I was a child. Right. And that's all she was, that's all Pam done. You know, she she beat herself up. She She had never forgot about her letting him go off the ride. It wasn't her fault. You know, she'd just been a mom. Right. 
and that is the difficult thing is that even even if no one ever says that and that even if no one ever implies you're going to always think that it was your fault that yeah, something I'm, you I'm did would have changed it um i know my one of my siblings one of my sisters had a near drowning many many years ago and my mom just lost it because she she blamed herself even though we were in a crowded pool uh my sister was where she was not supposed to be and my mom had you know lost sight of her for a minute um but that is I think that's any parent that experiences that kind of tragedy is always, you know, going to question what they could have done differently, which is the saddest thing about this is that a lot of people don't realize because they haven't walked in your shoes, what it's been like for you, Pam, Todd and Dana Moore, John uh, Byers and and Melissa Byers, even Amanda, Ryan Clark, and and Don Moore. Right. And as you you said in the book, you're members of a club nobody nobody wanted to be in. So... Um, now, what was your relationship with Steve like? Well, I was Stevie's stepdaddy, and uh, we had a good one. We would do anything and everything that we wanted to do, play and, you know, have fun, go camping, go swimming. We had a 33,000-gallon in-ground swimming pool in the backyard you know, they lived out there, loved it, and enjoyed it. And that's just how we lived. You know, had a nice home, um, good job, and we lived it. Yeah. And you were in Steve's life from, he was very young when you and Pam met and started dating even prior to getting married. I think he was about a year and a half old uh, when Pam and I married. Yeah. So, and then um, another thing that I've always been a little, I guess, curious about, prior to when you married Pam, what was your relationship like with her family members? Well, uh, I had I owned a restaurant, one of my dad's restaurants. That, you know, my dad started a chain of restaurants, seafood and catfish restaurants. Uh, I think we had 30, 32 restaurants, something like that. And I had one in Blyville. I, I, you know, I bought it from my dad. And uh, that's why, I, as an employer hiring employees. Uh, I, I hired Pam's younger sister, Paula. And, you know, through Paula, I met Pam. 
and I met the rest of the family as they would come in and out, you know, and uh, eat at the restaurant. And, uh, you know, they just, they were just a country family. To me, they was a country family, you know, just getting by and enjoying what they could, how they could, and, you know, just living it. But that's how I met Pam was through the family at that restaurant. And we went on eventually to marry and uh, start a life together. Okay. So it was a good relationship. It was. Actually, all okay. the way all the way up until May the 5th. You know, I was... the. I've heard him call me the best son-in-law in the family, you know, and, and I've, you know, we just tried to be part of the family. And right, right. Until May the 5th. That's the part that's always mystified me. Me too. That it could turn so drastically. And, of course, when I met you and Pam, None of yeah, there was no hint of any of that going on. Right. And, and she and I, I talked for some time and she never mentioned anything about suspicion or anything to do with you. Because there never was. You know, if if people would just look, it wasn't until the money started coming in. You know, until the uh, Paradise Lost showed up, you know, and started planting seeds, you know, and, and people, you know, they come in and cause people to point fingers, you know, and, and with what they've done and how their approach was. And and then from then it just went bizarre, you know. Everybody was a suspect, Mm-hmm. You know, in, 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 in certain people's minds, you know. Right. So, yeah, we've all sat and watched it. It's unbelievable what has been done in this case. Yeah, I now the first Paradise Lost, they were they were mostly looking at Mark Byers. And that you weren't so even a blip wrong. on the radar. Right, and that was totally wrong what they done to him. Yeah, yeah. But they done it over a pocket knife. Yeah, that that was uh, and Ron Lax, of course. <laughs> we'll talk about him a little bit more later. <clears throat> Yeah, don't want to me uh, talking about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, now the first, did, did Pam's sisters get involved in the first movie? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right. That was Paradise so. 1, Lost 1. I don't think it was in that. No, and they weren't, y'all weren't, y'all didn't participate in two at all. I think you turned them down. Right. Um, And Pam had tried to sue them 
which is ironic given that she's claimed in an interview that Bruce and Joe have already done always done right by her. Um, but that didn't pan out. And then between 1993 and 2007, aside from Pam and her family, your life was well, relatively quiet, although you were all still struggling to cope. Right. Right. Was, well, until well, the DNA. Yeah. Which I guess was, yeah, that was released publicly in 07, but I think in, sometime in 2006, I think that's when the investigators started showing up and um, offering people money to air dirty laundry, which is what it amounts to. Yeah, they just did my family. Hey, Lisa. Yes. I got a question uh, for Mr. Hobbs and Miss Vicky. Uh, <laughs> while we're, you know, here in this area where we're talking about where Paradise Lost uh, had some thoughts and, you know, about who it could have been being Mr. Mark Byers or Mr. Hobbs or what have you, uh, was there anybody up until the West Memphis Three were actually brought? In or, uh, you know, Damien, Miss Kelly, and uh, Baldwin were actually brought in front of the uh, media and they were arrested and so on and so forth. Was there ever anybody else you thought it could have been or uh, anything like that? And when did you know they were guilty? Well, like in my eyes, that, yeah, in, in my eyes, you know, I, I've always chose to believe what the police department has always told us so you know mm-hmm. as far as the, as far as the media you know it was them 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 and them all the time and then until the first paradise lost you know when when mark passed that give that guy a pocket knife as a souvenir is when mr latch got involved with that and turned the tables yes sir you know, but the but the police department has always been up front with us, and I think they've always been honest with us. And I don't think they would have misled us. You know, they're the ones doing the investigating and uh, the arrest and all that. You know, and we were just on the sidelines, you know, waiting to hear something from anybody. It was easy to yes, see sir. what was on the. It was easy to see what was on the news. Read the papers, read the magazines. That all that was out there, and and so I didn't, I didn't know what else to believe, and still don't. Then when I seen them start pointing fingers, you know, at Mark, I knew better. When I seen them start pointing fingers at me, I knew better, you know. So and all for you know to accomplish what they wanted, you know. That was in three boys walking, which was done. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I certainly understand that. I appreciate you letting me ask that. Sure. So um, now we get into the unethical defense tactics, which uh, for me, 
that's one of the reasons I don't believe or find most of their, quote, evidence to be credible because it's bought and paid for in one way or another. Or it's and coerced. Tall, and that's why as, their evidence hasn't gone to court. Mm-hmm. Uh, such as Ron Lax, I mean, you know, he's he threatened you. Um, I think he I, I think he had veiled threats against other members of your family, you know, talk to us or it's gonna come out one way or the other. And that's just so wrong. Ron Lax should have been charged as a stalker. <laughs> right. Right. For for what he's done. He has stalked me. Uh, up until even he stalked me so much here and there, he'd go to my neighbor's house. He'd go, you know, and, and start start rumors with my neighbors that I would have to, you know, they'd come over and say, what is this? And, you know, we'd talk about it. And until I went down to see him, you know, it kind of ticked me off. And, and I told him when I went to see him, you're lucky I can't find me a tank. Because I was willing to find it, and I did. Matter of fact, let me say this: I did find a tank. Because I was, I, I was in the frame of mind to drive that tank down there in front of his building and blow his building down. That's how I was thinking because of what he did. Mm-hmm. And what he done was totally wrong. I, and, I, I think it, it would have hurt him more if you'd driven that tank over his shiny BMW. Well, he's lucky I didn't. Let me say this: I found the tank. Now, in finding the tank, I needed a crane to get it off the train. <laughs> but but I, you, that's how mad I was. And you didn't. He's lucky you didn't find a crane. Exactly. But I did have a fellow call me up that found the tank. And I ain't kidding you. I mean, what they done, what they were doing, you know, was was wrong. And and for them right. to get by with this kind of stuff, you know, it was just I couldn't I couldn't imagine them doing something like this. If it was a blind side, and you know, it hit me hard, and I just didn't know what to think. And so, in the frame of mind I was in, I was, you know, if I'd have had a stealth plane, I would have flew over there. <laughs> right. You know, that's just what I was and, thinking, you know. And you were ambushed by John Douglas. Through Amanda. Yeah, it's not. Uh, you want to talk about Douglas? He's a jerk. He ought to be charged. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, this I is another thing that. Right. That he's got the profile in his mind, so he has to make you fit it. Well, he did Pure not. And simple. Yeah, in no. his warped, well, in his warped brain, he might have, but no, I didn't fit his profile. So, um, but that's the other the the other irony. They claim the police coerced Miss Kelly, and yet all this pressure that was put on you, you never you never made an admission to any of these people. No. In spite of the pressure that they put on you, because you didn't do it. As I sat there in the uh, 
Dixie Chicks deposition, at the end of that deposition, they had a pile of papers, you know, that they had went around and gathered, um, and it was so tall, I just laid my hand on top of it. And I had answered all their questions in that pile of papers. And I laid my hand on top of that pile, and I said, you see this pile right here? It's nothing but a bunch of crap. That is their, you know, that's their investigation. And I don't, you know, I guess if they get paid to do that, that's what they do. But I've never seen nothing like this. It is becoming a trend. Yeah. In post-conviction defense work. Yeah. Uh, horrible as that is, it is becoming a trend. And uh, then you dealt with Rachel Geyser, who was stealing your cigarette butts. Yeah, um, I guess you couldn't afford some. Right. And I just want to make a note for people listening. Um, Terry has always, when West Memphis PD wanted to talk to him, he has always responded and cooperated done everything they've asked him to do including giving fingerprints and footprints and I think you said possibly hair follicles right um, but he is not under any obligation to cooperate with the likes of Ron Lax, Rachel Geyser internet sleuths people from Australia who spend God only knows how much money traveling to Memphis to harass him. Uh, he's, he's not obligated to cooperate with those people. And I don't. He's not obligated to talk to Echo's lawyers. And he I can don't. tell them to go F themselves and if I that's do. what he wants to do. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's part of his constitutional rights as an American citizen. I had two New York City police officers retired who came to my work and called me outside and just started going down a list of questions, you know, that they had gathered for me. Well, I stood stood there and, and listened to their questions, and none of them made sense to me. But what I told them two men, I said, y'all need to go across that bridge and convince the police department of your allegations because to me none of what you just said makes any sense. That's how I try to be nice, but I try to be mm-hmm. firm about when I'm talking to these people. And I've had people like like you just said from Australia, from all around the country, you know, come and, and visit us and you just you have to put them on the road at some point and say, Look, you know, you're talking to the wrong person. How long ago was that? Which one? The two retired NYPD detectives. <laughs> uh, this was probably, it was after 2007. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was after Was that. one of them named on. Kevin Gannon? Uh, Do you remember? Not 
Not exactly, no. Okay. I don't, but there was two of them. Yeah. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, I guess. And all based on um, the fantasies of ex-in-laws who have a bone to pick with you. Yes. Over who knows quite what. Well, I think rejection, you know, had a lot to do with this. Because Pam, after I divorced Pam, she would come down and ask me to marry her. And I would tell her, Pam, I can't. You know, I'm doing this for for me. And, you know, I I loved her. I did the best I could. You know, out of 17 years of marriage, you know, 12 of them 17 years was after 1993. Mm -hmm. And I, I spent them years trying to, you know, keep the bond that we had to let her know we can win, we can beat this, you know, we can still live, and she couldn't accept that. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a point when I had to say, you know, I have to do something, and I have to do it for myself. Right. You know, because I couldn't keep living like that. You know, and I, I made that decision to do the divorce, and yes, it, it hurt. But it was, at the same time, good for me. Right. And and good for Amanda. You have to think about, you know, your it child. It was. And, I got, um, I got you know, God, be, God bless Pam. God bless Pam. But this just, she could not handle it. And she could not find a way to cope and deal with it. I know. In a way that was going to heal her because it seems like she just opens the wound. She continues just reopening the wound. I'd like to say you say that and in the book, Carrie actually mentions when he first met Pam that even then she seemed fragile. Yes. She was. She was she was just getting out of a rehab and from a drug overdose, you know, and this is how, this was the state of mind she was in when I met her, when I first put her to work. And after I first put her to work as a waitress, I had to ask her to take some more time off because she wasn't ready. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was doing this for her, and and she took more time off and you know, gather herself to do whatever but you know this was Pam in the beginning right yeah she always of all the moms it's like she was the most fragile she followed is. by Melissa yeah. and then yeah. Dana if people would leave her alone she might could do good, but they they constantly remind her, cause her to relive it, 
And until today, you know, she's still fragile. Right. Right. That's what I was saying. It seems like she just can't let, she can't heal because she or or those around her keep reopening. Right. And that's sad. Yeah. And, but, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You've got to want to change for change to happen. Sure. And so, um, you know, and that's, like I said, you did, you did what you needed to do, not only for yourself, but for Amanda to try and give her some stability. Right. And what you did. In her life. And yeah, and when she was with you, <laughs> so um, Michael, do you want to go ahead and do the quick break? Absolutely, we can certainly take a quick break. I'm sure Mr. Hobbs and Miss Vicky would like to at least get something to drink. They've been talking uh, for about an hour now, so let's go ahead and give them a break, and uh, we'll be right back with more clear and convincing right after this. But 
is available on Amazon, you should read it. Oh, absolutely. I'm definitely fascinated, you know. I'm glad that, you know, we do shows like this, Lisa, because you don't see them very often where a gentleman like Mr. Hobbs is actually getting a chance, unlike a situation like Paradise Lost or a situation like that where he's getting a chance. You know what? Here's the story from my side. And you know they're giving the they're giving everybody a chance to look at him in a light without that bias on on him. And uh, real quick, Lisa, I don't mean to uh, I don't mean to throw us off of the schedule again, but uh, Brad just uh, messaged me and asked if he could ask one more question. Is that okay with you? Sure, if it's okay with Terry and Vicky. Sure. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and bring it back live. Mr. Higgs? Uh, again, thank you for, for taking my question, Terry and Vicki. Uh, in the book, I, I wanted to know, and, and you don't have to go into detail because I know you don't want to give it away, uh, anything in the book other than and let people read it, but, uh, you know, I watched an interview where uh, I call it the famous 11 speech when Gitchell was asked. Uh, you know, on a, on a scale of one to ten, how convinced was he that he had the, the was going to get a guilty plea or whatnot? And he said eleven. He said he almost wished he hadn't said that. And I was just wondering, having you having obviously and unfortunately been firsthand, uh, you know, involved in that trial and, and, and such, uh, do you see um, anything different that the West Memphis Police Department could? could have done back then uh, that would have maybe kind of helped throw away some of the accusations that were being thrown at him? Because, I mean, I guess if you go back in time, uh, today's youth probably doesn't understand that in 1993, if you wore all black and you listened to Metallica, you were, you know, you were socially labeled as, as a devil worshiper up to a degree, and especially in a smaller town like West Memphis, um, it's not the the stigmas aren't there in today's society like they were back then. So, do you think that the police department could have done anything different? Do you talk about that in the book at all? Well, I'll weigh in on that. If Terry don't mind. No, go ahead. So, in 1993, I was the opposite of wear black and listen to heavy metal and just because people dressed like that didn't necessarily label them as murderers 
you have to think about all the things the West Memphis police did that brought them to that conclusion outside of the way those kids dressed and those kids' actual actions during that time. Uh, the really one primary thing I think the police could have done in 93 was have some better procedures in following a large murder case. I mean, you took some small town police officers who had never done this and they were literally thrown into the fire. So I, I think that the main thing they could have done maybe was call in some help from a, a bigger a bigger police station. Absolutely. I mean definitely one thing that, you know, I, I remember thinking is, wow, these guys these guys, you know, it's kinda like unfortunately and I'll share a situation that happened to me. Uh here in Sherwood, you know, uh my uncle was unfortunately uh murdered uh i want to say it's been almost it's going to be three years in august and you know sherwood was up front with us they said you know we don't get very many of these and you know that isn't even a big scale situation whereas you know i can only imagine you know west memphis having to deal with something like that in 93 i'm sure it did get a little overwhelming for them to have to deal with you know the national media for the first time and things like that. Well, you had, and let's yeah, not I agree. Yeah, let's not forget also that once they started looking into the history of these boys, you know, drinking blood, licking blood off of them and pro- proclaiming, you know, who they were. And I'm sure that there were all this added up to to help them form the conclusion that they they came to. I I agree with that. Yeah, these boys wasn't saints now. I agree. And the wearing black and listening to heavy metal was actually, for kids in that age group, even in West Memphis, was kind of the norm because they were so close to the metropolitan area in Memphis that a lot of the progressiveness made its way into that. And when you look at the Paradise Lost, even the first movie, you see kids with the concert T-shirts and Metallica and Slayer and all those things and the mullets and, you know, that was the fashion for that age. Um, and it wasn't the clothing and the uh, m- the music taste or even the reading taste. It was Eccles' m- mental history right. of what three psychiatric hospitalizations in a year before the murders. I believe he with homicidal and suicidal ideation. Yeah, he threatened, he threatened girlfriends, family. Yeah. His yeah, his parents. Um his uh his mother and father were worried about his eight year old half brother and sent him up off back to Oregon not sh- not long before the murders. 
Now, I have a question, and honestly, this is something that you made me think about it, you know, uh, saying about his psychiatric history and things like that leading into uh, what happened. You made me think about this, uh, and it's, you know, kind of the the famous excerpt from Paradise Lost One where uh, Damien said, you know, I want to be remembered as the West Memphis boogeyman, or I'm not exactly sure. I can't quote exactly what he said. But how much of that, though, I understand normal teenagers don't say crap like that, but at the same time, how much of that is I'm going to be a te- I want to be a teenager and I want to be rebellious and so on and so forth. I, you know, I'm just going to say stupid stuff. You know, unfortunately, we'll never know until Eccles decides to be honest of how much it was just cultivating that. And, you know, if Eccles has anybody to blame, it's himself. He's the one telling the probation officers he's in a cult that's about to graduate to human sacrifice. If it was he's a rumor, be he's the one because who's... he believes himself. Oh now. no! Oh no! He does. I I totally agree. And Baldwin, the same way. Um, I'm I'm hoping Miss Kelly between now and 2021 will commit some kind of felony that's got him looking at more prison time, and maybe he will once again spill the beans. But, uh, no, Eccles cultivated that image for himself. He did. We had a caller on the show, the first show that I did with Brad and, and Sean and Michael, and she said he once walked up to her and said something along the lines of, of, you know, I wonder if I cut your head off, how far would it roll? I actually do remember that caller, too, from the very first show that, we did. And, yeah, that definitely you know, was like, wow. And I think part of the problem is, is when you support him, you make excuses and brush off those kinds of statements and behaviors as being meaningless. Right. And I could but, see somebody, honestly, I could see somebody saying, well, you know, as far as the statements he made to the police about uh, the cult and being led into human sacrifice, I could see somebody going, saying something to the effect of, well, he was just irritated that the police were looking at him. I mean, at some time, though, and maybe it's just because I was raised differently, but at some point, you know, part of me, too, goes, nah, I'm not exactly going to be making smart-ass comments, excuse my language, uh, to somebody that could legitimately get me in a world of trouble. I'm probably going to be like, yes, sir, no, sir, sorry, you know, things like that. Right. And that's, you know... That's not normal. And like I said, he wants to he wants to turn it around and make it look like he was undeservedly targeted when he was the one laying the groundwork for people to look at the sum of his actions and his history and say he could have done this. 
Well, it didn't look that good going out to a, a ball field and bragging about it. You remember that? Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yes. That, that's some of the same stuff. You know, he he brought this on, and he was probably out there bragging about it. You know, people stand there listening. You know, what and some expect? people were shocked. Yeah. And they they did what they needed to do and reported it to police. Once he was arrested. So, um, and he he cultivated that. You reap what you sow. Yep. So, um, and unfortunately, we have, you know, the the media initially was on the... Uh, ritual satanic angle and they were guilty and then suddenly the tide turned and then we have unethical media coming along uh, 48 hours which I understand they ambushed you at work again Terry yes 48 hours sure did you know and I, I went down with a couple of the attorneys and met with them and, you know, stood there and listened to them talk their attorney talk and, you know, agreed to do a 48 hours with them. And, you know, and still, it's like one of my attorneys told me, you know, Terry, anything you say in innocence will be used against you. And I have seen that done time and time again. And that's why I started the journals. You know, it was before that I started the journals, but I just kept doing it, you know. And every time I would do something, I would see how the media would take what I would say, telling them the truth, and then turn around and, and make me look like the bad person, you know, and which was all fabrications, you know. And, and at the same time, you don't get a chance to rebut it. And that's what brought right. me up. And that's why I decided, you know, to keep journaling, keep journaling, and then hopefully one day get to where we are today. They can't change nothing in that book. Right. Exactly. And that is and something I want to comment on because a lot of Internet sleuths think they know you and have, quote, profiled you. But in the book, Whenever you mention the murders and the impact, you talk not only about yourself, but about Pam, Amanda, the Moors, and the Byers. And consistently throughout the book, you always, it's not just you, what's happened to you, the effect on you, it's looking at the collective. Uh, effect on everyone and that's another thing that I admired because it's not about you right it was a tragedy it was devastating to everybody involved both sides I could only imagine the other side but we had to live with this side of it you know and this side of it has you know it's traumatizing you know and and when grief grows around, you don't know how to deal with it. You know, don't know how to handle it. 
and it's grief is tough. And I ain't kidding you. Grief of yeah, I, I don't know how you can de- define grief, you know, but it is so mean when it rolls around and you know people act differently. They act. Everybody grieves differently, and we have seen some sad situations come out of grief, and it's heartbreaking, you know, that people, there's no rules, there's no definition, you know, you just, you try to survive, and you're put into the survival mode, you know, as how how can I get past this, you know, and, and trust me, it takes a toll on everybody, and we, we sit back and we've watched it, you know, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the reviews on the book said Terry's book was all about family, and and that's kind of what you were just saying. It it wasn't just about Terry. It's about the family unit, good, bad, or mm-hmm. ugly. Correct, and the support from his family that he's always gotten throughout his life. Right. Um, I have even before this, I have a big-hearted family on both my mother's side and my dad's side. You know, you folks that had to meet them, and once you met them, you they treat you like family. You know, and, and they've been really supportive, and mm-hmm. I appreciate them. I love them, and I can't thank them enough. Yeah. They sound like the rebels, my mom's family. <laughs> because my my father, even after my mother and father divorced, my father still went to Delaware and visited my mother's family, not his own. Um, and my brother and, and our cousins would come visit dad in New Orleans, um, which tickled my mom. It's like, we've been divorced for years. Why are you talking to John? But he was going to stay a part of the family no matter what happened. Yeah. So, by the There's way, Terry, like I wanted that. to pass on I, – I I think I posted on Facebook. But I wanted to pass on my condolences on Cindy when Cindy passed away. I'm so sorry. Thank you. She was um, my only sister, and you know, we, we loved her, too. Yeah. Was was it kind of like um, your dad made the rules and you and Mike and Joe were the enforcers? Well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> we had a cool We've had family. Some... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, and, uh, yeah, I, I Joe and Mike with were, the, a little. were the spoiled ones. <laughs> <laughs> we might have been like the well, you remember them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I had a, a boss who he had a son, and then many years later, his son was about 13, they finally had their little girl. And he always said, I'm going to make the rules, and my son is my enforcer to deal go. with all the boys. So, but... Um, uh, so moving on, Paradise Lost Three. Um, as I, you know, read in the book, it didn't turn out the way it was supposed to, because the promises that were made were not fulfilled. 
when you agreed to participate in that particular venture. Right. So um, I did see the interviews, and I, I did see um, – I think it was Cindy uh, in one of the interviews. But was that also – you know, were they putting pressure on y'all to – or on your family to – say negative things and tell negative stories? Well, they was probably calling themselves profiling, you know, digging up anything they can, you know, for, I guess, to use for whatever reason. You know, but they did. They went up and put pressure on my my mother and on my sister. And, you know, I don't know why. They went and visited yeah. my parents too. They did. Yeah. Yeah. I even called the FBI. I sure did. And I talked to them about Mr. Douglas and I told them what he was out here doing. And, you know, I was letting known that we're just not going to go out and make arrests, but, you know, we know what's going on. I did talk to him. Well, hopefully very soon that that type of thing is going to come back and bite him in the butt with a a prosecutor who's not going to roll over. Well, it's it's and let the defense have what they want. You know, evidently he didn't make an he you know, he doesn't make enough off of his retirement to live. And he gets out mm-hmm. here. I seen him the other day on a, on TV here in Memphis profiling another case. You know, and I guess if if they don't make enough money to uh, retire and live on, they get out here and hustle up work. And they it's all about the paycheck now. So now, mm-hmm. if you if you want a good paycheck, you will agree to whatever. You know, and that's kind right. of what he he done in our case. You know, when I first met him, you know, he seemed like a pretty level-headed man. Back at the time I met him, his demeanor was plum different, and he profiled me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I, I wondered, how can you do that? You because know, you're not the same John Douglas I met earlier. You know, and it was just like I was under attack. Right. And I didn't play. I right, and he... Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I got right up and left, and they come out hollering at me. Get back in here! <laughs> Did you show them the one figure salute? No, I was. I, you know, I, I was respectful. You're too polite for that. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I, I did just get up and tell them. I said, I ain't got time for this. Got up and walk, and they come to the door yelling at. Me. You know, I just mm-hmm. kept on walking, went home. That is, it, 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 it's crazy the lengths that they'll stoop to. And they have. Ron Lax was, he was the one who told me if I didn't cooperate with him and his investigation, he was going to sick the dogs on me. And then the next thing you know, John Douglas shows up. I guess he was the uh-huh. dog. He might have been mad yeah. if he knew he was called a dog. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that that he was at Ron Lax's beck and call. Yeah. Um. So and then they they enlisted John Mark Byers. Yeah, I guess they bought him. You know, mm-hmm. He told me that now I, I used to be what I thought we were friends with John, John Mark Byers. And up until, you know, whoever come in and paid him some money told him, if you get on our bandwagon, we'll get the heat off of you and put it on somebody else. And they give him mm-hmm. some money. And I guess that's how he became a supporter, you know, of the Echo Bunch. Correct. Uh, the last and time I talked to him... He called me, and this was before the hair DNA results had been made public. But he told me, I've been talking to Terry, and this is what Terry told me. Terry said they have a picture of Eccles sitting on the couch with Steve. Can you believe that? And, of course, since it... Well, that John Mark Byers made that up. <laughs> well, I, I sorry to say, photo. I, I did see um, the photo, and it was Echo sitting on my couch with two kids, two of the boys on each side. But somebody made that up. I mean, that didn't happen. Yeah, he wasn't yeah, I know. I, yeah, I wouldn't let someone like him hang around my house. Yeah, but um, someone made that now, photo. Well, uh, yeah, no, there was never a photo. That's what I'm saying. Ba- Mark Byers made that all up. I don't know what his angle was at the time, but I think he was inside on the, you know, defense side by that point. And so he was trying to start stuff for you. Because I think what he thought was that I would go and post it somewhere on the Internet as though you had told me. And then they would say, oh, well, why is Terry saying this when, you know, that's not true? So, but it didn't work out that way. And I don't think any any of us in the non-camp uh, fell for that one. So nobody took the bait. No, there's, there's been a lot of silly stuff, uncalled for things happen, you know, and I don't know why they do it, I guess, for money. But, you know, this camp don't roll like that. Mm-mm. No. <clears throat> and then um, in, you know, 2007, you filed, or, or about 2008, was it? You filed the defamation suit based on Natalie Maine's public statements? Correct. Yeah. Um, and you know it's a shame sorry go ahead now I had a couple of attorneys get a hold of me and and tell me they've been watching this and that I need to come talk to them so I went to talk to them and they said let let us do it so I did you know it turned out like it did but one thing that we did do was shut her up Mm-hmm. And that's 
to me, that was all I wanted. You know, you don't right. know what you're talking about. Keep your mouth shut. Right. And, uh, you know, that it's kind of a shame because it doesn't seem like you weren't that uh, involved with the media until the accusations started. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, was, I was just trying to take up for myself, you know, and that correct. hurt me in the long run. It hurt in the long run. That's why the federal judge called me a public figure was that he said I inserted myself into it and I only did, you know, calling myself, taking up for myself. Who who else is going to do it? Well, I, you know, I, I think the attorney that you hired or went with just, he got himself in over his head. That's always know. been my estimation of it because, you know, one of the things I would have, my firm would have done was saying, we're not doing anything till we depose Natalie Main to find right. out where they she got her that. information. And I know they, I know <clears throat> they didn't. And um, the other thing would be showing, wait, wait, hang on a second. He didn't become a public figure until his name started being put out there as a killer. And then of course he's going to want to address that. It was all and he has every right to address it. Sure. Uh because between I don't I don't think between nineteen ninety three and two thousand seven I I think I could probably count the number of articles on one hand and still drink a cup of coffee. Where you I said didn't understand how did they let them slaughter him and didn't address her at all. Because unfortunately, I mean, in defamation, they it, it was a very narrow issue. And his attorney just did not approach it or develop it well enough to get it across to the judge that prior to 2007, he was not a public figure. When the allegations were made by Natalie Maines, he was not a public figure. And so he should be able to pursue this claim. Um, but I, I do, I, you know, it was horrible, the, the stuff that they were circulating about him, saying, you know, not only was he a public figure, but look at how horrible he was from his former in-laws. Um, all of whom are being paid at that time by Amy Berg, who's working on West of Memphis, and probably by Bruce and Joe, who are working on Paradise Lost 3. Um, so it, it's a very narrow issue, and defamation is difficult to prove. Um, and he might have been in a, you know, a little bit, if he'd been a little bit smarter, he would have found somebody who does this all the time or who has done it successfully and brought them in because they know how to, you know, they know how to present the case in a way that's going to keep it going past summary judgment. 
So can I add something to this? Sure. I want to add something that a lot of folks may not know, that at the end of the Natalie Maines case, it was rumored and posted all over social media that I owed them X amount of dollars. And mm-hmm. people still people still bring it up, you know. But at the end of our case, you know, we had the uh, right to appeal it. Now, so it was a $15,000 appeal bond in the state of Arkansas in the federal case that we were in, okay? Yeah. Now, do you know that the Dixie Chicks approached, their attorneys approached my attorneys and uh, settled this, uh, order that I was ordered to pay them, that, and they told us if we did not appeal it, that they would, you know, waive all the fees and all that, and if we if, if we did not appeal it, and they agreed to that. Okay, yeah, that that is because you would have had you would have had an appeal to the Eighth Circuit on whether there was a genuine issue of material fact uh, as far as you being a public figure. Right. And so her attorneys worked out a deal with your attorney to forego your appeal right, and then they would not collect on the the order for their, their fees and things, which... In federal court, in a defamation case, unfortunately, the winning party can go after the other side for attorney fees. Right. So, Which was actually yeah. pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't understand why there would be a $15,000 appeal bond in federal court where you were the plaintiff. And there were no damages awarded to you. Well, that's what an I appeal was bond is usually okay. An appeal bond is usually to cover the damages that have been awarded in the event the appealing party, usually the defendant, is not successful on the appeal. But I, it may have been because of the the attorney's fee order. If that was if that if they got that prior to your uh, expiration of your time to appeal, which it seems like they did get it pretty quickly, right? But just so All everybody right. knows, I didn't have to pay the Dixie Chicks a penny. You know, they settled that, and that was never put out there. And I wanted that to Correct. be put out there. Correct, because that's another another problem with uh, the the innocence movement is they don't tell the whole story. Right. They tell the part of the story that makes them look good. Yeah, sensationalism. Right. So. Same with the media. Um. Now. On the Alfred pleas, it's very interesting because I had um, – see, I think it was on Facebook 
when the police initially occurred. And Todd and Dana Moore were upset because Ellington did not contact the families at the time the police were proposed by Eccles' attorneys. They contacted us before it went to court. Right. But that was, it was a done deal by the time he contacted any of the family members. Right. And we had, me and Scott had some uh, heated discussions about this. And I'm sure Todd did with them and the Moors, and I don't know about the rest of them, but I'm sure that they did, and I know Steve did. Uh, but, yeah, we when, when we found out, it was a done deal, like you said, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, another blind side. So throughout this whole case, you, you, can, uh, you can see there was blind side after blind side, and that was another big one. You know, and how could right. they do that? It was the right. prior, the prior uh, DA was really upset about it, and the prior and the prior judge was really upset about it. Correct. Uh, but what could be done? It was a done deal. Well, we found out. Judge Burnett should have just given him hearings on the new trial motions in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And, they and then when he denied the motions, they would not have been sent back by the Arkansas State Supreme Court. And that's another, you know, bizarre thing. They were granted a uh, evidential hearing. Uh, why didn't they go forward with that if they were so convinced? Correct. You know, instead instead of opt out on the plea. And their evidence was so. Definitive and conclusive. There was no evidence. <laughs> well, that's that's they what lied. they make it. They make it seem that it was. Yeah, but, um, to but me, you know, they, they, to me, they lied to the Arkansas Supreme Court mm-hmm. with this new evidence that they presented. There was none. Well, the the appeal, <clears throat> the appeal to the Arkansas State Supreme Court was actually more procedural. They wanted the hearings. The statute said they were entitled to the hearings. And Judge Burnett decided without hearing. Without a hearing. Um, So the Arkansas State Supreme Court sent it back on a procedural issue. Nothing more. Um, Nothing to do with the merits of their claims. So they weren't really lying, you know. They were presenting the uh, state of their alleged evidence in the light most favorable to their position. But you know, they would have had um, Pam and her sisters. Cross examination would have happened, and I don't think any of them would have done well. Right. They're. Alleged DNA evidence was not conclusive, and I believe there were some partial profiles that actually didn't exclude them, and that would have become public knowledge. I still to this day suspect that there was DNA evidence that actually identified one or more of them, 
And that's what they did not want to see the light of public record in court. And that's why they came up with the Alfred plea. Can't prove it, but based on my 20-plus years' experience, you don't settle when you've got a slam-dunk case, and you're going to win. Right. So, um, Lisa? And I think, yeah. Lisa, I apologize. Uh, I wanted to. Uh, I'm getting a question here from uh, Facebook, and I really think this one more be, may be aimed at you. But uh, Mr. Hobbs, you can feel free to uh, weigh in on this as well. Uh, and you know, I hadn't thought about this beforehand, but based upon what we were just talking about, uh, the gentleman says Jason Baldwin refused his initial Alfred plea. And he wanted to go forward with the trial. And uh, I guess Paradise Lost said that, you know, obviously uh, Eccles, I guess either Eccles himself or Eccles' attorneys talked him into taking it. Uh, Does that weigh in as proof of innocence for just him alone in your mind? That he actually wanted to go to trial again? There was no trial. Right. What I'm saying is that he actually wanted to go forward rather and continue pursuing it rather than the Alfred plea, I guess, is the With way the I went into. Is yes. that speculation or is that documents? Uh, that now, I know it was spec- definitely brought up in Paradise Lost that he had to be coerced into taking the Alfred plea by Mr. Eccles. Well, I was a first-hand front row seat to how they take people's words and twist them around and make them say what they want to. So I still have to wonder if there was documentation for that. Okay, okay. Well, definitely, and that's one thing that uh, the listener, I I had actually forgot about that part in Paradise Lost, the uh, third one, where they had said that, you know, initially, and I want to say it was Miss Kelly was telling the story, and he was like, yeah, uh, Baldwin didn't, uh, Baldwin didn't want to uh, take it, but, you know, for Damien's life, uh, they talked him into it. And actually, I just got another message. Uh, According to, and I don't have a quote on this, but in his own words, basically, he wanted to go forward on an interview, but he knew that for Damien's sake, uh, he had to take the uh, deal based upon, you know, obviously, I guess he felt a rush because of the uh, death sentence. Okay. Uh, Pardon me. I'm going to weigh in on that one real quick. First of all, um, that is what is known as a self-serving statement. Right. Um, It makes Baldwin look really good to say, I wanted the hearings to go forward, but they were going to kill Damien, and so I had to take the Alfred plea even though I didn't want to. Okay. the last execution in Arkansas was in 2006. Executions right. were not reinstated with the new protocol until 2017 or 2018. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Eccles was not going to be executed on September 1st, 2011, if they didn't enter those Alfred pleas. That is So that bold. wasn't really a viable – that wasn't really a viable – No. Is what you're saying. In fact, the hearings were set to begin in December. An execution date could not have even been set for Eccles. And then once they okay. finished in state court, they still had federal habeas court. Or habeas relief in federal court to seek. So that doesn't necessarily Which was, make you reconsider his innocence. You think it's just a uh, self-serving thing where he's like, well, I took this deal and, and, you know, basically said, hey, the state has enough evidence. But really, I only did it because of Damien. Correct. It's a self-serving okay. statement. Eccles and Baldwin have engaged in some little sniping and uh, not so positive things about one another. Baldwin, of course, tries to act the hero and say, I saved Eccles' life. Eccles had said he didn't want to take the plea because he liked it in prison. So there's that. Failed out of Arkansas as quick as humanly possible. Once he he got out, he booked it out of Arkansas pretty quick. So I'm not doubting that he made that statement. I'm just saying, you know, he stated very bad things about the state of Arkansas and the uh, prison system uh, since he got out. So that was just contradictory to what I've heard him say. So that's why I was asking that. Well, yeah, that's all, like I said, that's all Baldwin making himself a victim. That he was a slave right. in the Arkansas Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, if he was really a slave, somebody would have filed a Section 1983 claim on his behalf. Because, <laughs> um, that, you know, prisoners use Section 1983 a lot. Look at Mumia Abu-Jamal. So, no, that's all just to make himself a victim and garner sympathy. Okay, thank you very much for answering that. Because, I mean, until they had asked this, I had actually completely forgot about that aspect of the Alfred plea where uh, in that uh, documentary he had actually said, or they had actually said that, you know, Baldwin had Mm -hmm. to be talked into it. Because I remember they actually... He was. I remember he was kind of staunchly opposed to it, quote unquote, because he wanted to proclaim his innocence and you know so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the problems. That's one of the other problems that I have is that they are convicted murderers. We should take everything they say with a grain of salt. We should expect or demand corroboration. Of everything they say. Documentation of everything that they say. Correct. Because they have a motive to lie and twist the facts and the truth. And then we have before 2007, John Mark Byers. Everything he said was twisted and turned, and he was painted into something that he was not, which is a murderer. 
and now they're doing it to Terry. Everything he says, everything he does is scrutinized and twisted and made to be proof of basically a fantasy. Well, I mean, heck, Lisa, if you remember in the second one, it all, they stopped just short. But the way I inter- interpreted it, interpreted it, they almost accused him of killing his wife as well. Oh, they did. They did accuse him. Yeah. Y'all talked to his stepson about that, Ryan Clark. Now he mm-hmm. he he can fill you in on some things you probably never even imagined about it. But he's got his own beliefs well, about it. Right. And, you know, Ryan, like Amanda, I think he's been used and cajoled and probably bribed to say what certain factions want him to say. Um, I don't think he knows. anything really useful as far as what happened to his brother and and Steve and Michael any more than Amanda would. She was only four. Yeah, but I think he was, what, 12? 11 or 12 when this yeah. happened? And he was 12 crossed, or 13. Yeah, we crossed paths that night. He ain't for- Mm-hmm. I talk to him whenever I want to. I've got his phone number, and yeah, he's real quick to tell you. You know, leave him. I'm talking about myself. He'll say, "Leave Mister Hobbs alone." You know, right? I, he'll tell you that real quick. Yeah, but again, you know, the people they still hunt him down, and they just done hunted him down last summer, and really put him through it. Mhm. Yeah. No, and I don't. I don't mean anything. I don't mean anything negative toward Ryan. Um, I just don't think, as far as substantive information about the murders themselves, right. he was at court. Yeah, he was looking for Chris. Yes, they were driving around looking for Chris. Um. But he's been through a trauma, and who knows if what he remembers now is even accurate. Right. And why put him through that? Um, so, but they'll continue throwing money at him and hunting him down, and, you know, unfortunately... Um, and I hope whatever whatever he's doing, that he's done some things to keep his head straight. He has. Because he, this kind of pressure makes you want to escape. Right. And I, I, I think man. it's led. And he's a businessman. He's a self-made man. And he's he's doing good for himself. Really proud good. of that. I am. I'm glad to hear that. And I, I, 
I heard Amanda's doing well. She's doing better than she has. And I'm so I'm so happy for that. That time, um, <laughs> Well, if she was so young, and this is, know. you know, this is a hard a hard thing. And like I said, it, it makes you want to escape. Lord knows. I mean, I can, I don't really drink. I haven't smoked pot in 30 years. But if I were going through this kind of pressure for as long as you and and everyone else has, I probably would be pretty messed up all the time. Yeah. It's in order easy to deal to, with it. Right. It's easy to get there, you know, but we... We choose the high road, leave it alone, keep on living. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I was going to talk about West of Memphis, but I'm not even <laughs> – I'm so over those those portrayals. Um, now, did you ever imagine that you'd be involved in something like this the way you're involved now? No. Like I said earlier, it's a blind side, you know. I don't didn't know what to think of it at first. I had anger issues about this. I've had depression about this. I've had crazy thoughts about this, you know. And I had to get a hold of myself, and because I seen what it was doing to me, and so I chose to stay away from it, live it alone, let people do what they do. And keep living. What about you, Vicky? Well, no, I mean, I had to kind of distance myself from from social media when they talk about it because for a while I would get mad, but now now it doesn't bother me. I just look at it and think those people are all crazy. You must think people like me are crazy, even even if I am on the side of the angels. No, so people speak. like the forensic dentist, uh, <laughs> the internet sleuth. Some of those folks. <laughs> so, um, I just try to give a different perspective. If you still have your opinion after looking at all the facts, that's fine. I respect that. But if you're relying only on the facts that fit your opinion, then your opinion is not really worth anything. That's the way I've mm. always seen it. Um, you, you, you know, everybody's entitled to be wrong. But uh, at least be wrong with 100% of information. Yeah, I mean. Lisa, one way, one other way I choose to deal with it, you know, is is through my music. Mm -hmm. If if people can go to the YouTube and listen, I mean, I write songs about us victims. You know, and about the school shootings that, that we see all around the country. I write songs about that, you know, and I, I 
playing my music and I play them and I post them on YouTube and there's messages in there. I want people, you know, if, and, and I do this because at some point someone has to do it, you know, and right. who, better, who better than someone that's been there? You know, I heard one big uh, Nashville star say, you know, write songs about your life, about your stories in your life. And that's what I do. And I think there's some neat ones on there. I'm not the best at it, but I have fun doing it. But there's messages in them. You know, leave our kids alone. I write one about that. Leave our children alone. When you, you see all these school shootings out here, you know, and mm-hmm. I wish people would go listen to them. You know, I get excited about doing it, and it, you know, some people say they're sad songs, but they're true songs. Yeah. Um, if you can copy and paste a link to your page in. Messenger to me on His Facebook, YouTube and page. I will put it up. Yeah. Because if you search Terry Hobbs, Lord only knows what you're going to find on YouTube. Exactly. And his channel. <laughs> his channel may not be the first or third thing. Uh, but I'll post a link it's not. on... Uh, <laughs> I'll post a link on our... Um, our show page, which will be where people click to listen to this show, and I'll post it on our. Uh, we have a WordPress page, and I'll post it there, so that people can check it out and hear hear your music. I I certainly will be listening to that tomorrow while I'm at work. There's some pretty good songs and some pretty good music. You know, like I said, I'm not the best at it, but I enjoy that. I will definitely be listening. Yeah, he's not even the tenth person that comes up. (laughs) That's what I. Yeah, that's what I figured. So it might make it a bit easier. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I'm gonna make it. Put a direct link, and I'll post it on Facebook on the. uh, I'll post it in the comments on my timeline and the clear and convincing timeline. Um, so that people can can go you know go to your page directly to your page sure, and listen you. to it. So, um, all right, uh, do, Michael, does Brad still have a question? Um, I believe uh, we are good. Uh, actually, you know what? He did have one more that he uh, messaged me here on Messenger. That I guess would be a okay. good, uh, question to ask um, Terry, you know, as we go ahead and move on. And uh, basically the roundabout of it was, you know, 26 years later, when this first started happening 26 years ago, did you ever in your wildest imagination think we'd be here at this point where – you know, you'd be as involved as what you are in this situation and, you know, everything that's happened in the 26 years intervening? No, I never have thought that we would be here today. 
you know, I've always grown up living the American dream, and that's what I thought I would live, you know, just like everybody else out here. And then things like this happen, and you're seeing this more and more every day, all around the country, all around the world. You know, people, there are there are becoming more victims every day, senseless acts of crime. That's just unbelievable. And, you know, this is, you know, this is what has drug us into this today. You know, it's unimaginable in my eyes. Never thought or never dreamed anything like this would happen to, to our family. Absolutely. Sometimes I don't know what to think about it. You know, it's, I have, I'm human too, you know. I have emotions and feelings and you know, and I see what happens around the around the world, and you know, in this country, things like this shouldn't happen. You know, where where are we going wrong now? Yes, sir. That's certainly you know. Uh, it seems like you know back in the crazy thing is you know, and me and Brad have talked about this before, talking about the West Memphis story back in 1993. It was a big deal, and unfortunately, nowadays, it just seems like, unfortunately, it's gotten to the point where it's commonplace in the current world, things like this happening, and, you know, you're absolutely right, Mr. Hobbs. It's, you know, it's crazy to think about the world we live in currently, even just comparative to back then as well. It is. It's sad, you know. You're seeing more and more Families being made into victims, you know, and that, you know, at some point that has to touch somebody, you know, and it touches home here with us. Yeah. I think it's also there, there's people aren't held accountable for their actions the way they were when I was a kid, when y'all were kids, uh, not Michael, but, you know, we're, we're all of the same generation. And, you know, actions have consequences, but it's always mm-hmm. someone else's fault. Yeah, you know, the system is so full, it's overcrowded, and so the laws have changed. I mean, what was heavily punishable back in our day is not so hard today. Why? Because they can't accommodate, and so they let them in, they let them out, and it happens again, and it's a it's a cycle that is ongoing that, you know, at some point someone's going to have to figure out how to stop it. Right. I agree. The system can't fix everybody and can't accommodate them, you know. And so what do you do with them? They let them out. Mm-hmm. There's people out here that don't belong out here, you know, but they can't keep them in there. They're overcrowded. Yeah. Well, Terry, in all these 26 years and the process of, of your journaling and writing your book, 
what are some of the lessons that you've learned from your experiences? I wish I was still a kid again. <laughs> I wish I'd never grown up. It wasn't like this when we were growing up. But I've learned. You know, I, I, I want to say I'd like to trust people, but you can't. And that, and right. that, that says something. Because when you, and it's hard to find somebody to confide in because you, you, the trust issue, you know, and, you know, we just, we, we look for friends, we try to be friendly, neighborly, you know, and it's just, it's just that you can't trust people like you used to trust them. Everybody's out to, you know, backstab and hurt, and, you know, mm-hmm. the drama, and, and we don't do that. So... I've learned to, and I've always been a private type of person. Just I get up, and go to work every day. I live, I love, I laugh, I enjoy, you know, and and I I keep moving. And but I've learned some things by this, you know, and and it's really it's really something to see a system that allows, you know, this kind of stuff to go on, you know. No, it, it really can be fixed. And what about you, Vicky? Well, I learned writing a book was a lot harder than I thought it was, <laughs> and that it's it's really all about perspective. How how I see things, how Terry sees things, how the world on the internet sees things, and people have a hard time reconciling reconciling what they believe with with somebody else. Just because Terry's truth is one thing doesn't mean that people on the opposite side don't think their truth is right, and it's just about perspective and I've learned you have to look at people and, and weigh, you know, is this worth having a battle over or, or not? And ultimately not because Terry knows what he knows. I know what I know. And, and fighting with all those internet people just, you know, take you down a road you you don't need to go. So I've, I've learned just to, you know, let it watch over me. <laughs> good advice I've taken that approach to a degree but I'm stubborn (laughs) well it's kind of your job (laughs) but anyway (laughs) and so when they're really 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 wrong I have to say something or it's gonna it's gonna eat at me but uh, well i want to thank you guys for taking so much time out of your day, your evening. Uh, Terry, happy birthday tomorrow. Thank you. I meant to say that at the top of the show, and I forgot. <laughs> so have have a great one tomorrow uh, with Amanda and your grandbabies and your friends and anybody else. Um, eat some cake. There you go. 
<laughs> thank you, Lisa. <laughs> All right. And Vicky, thank you again. It was great when you're thank ready you. to update. Let me know. I'll be happy to proof. Okay. Because I didn't so I, I enjoyed proofreading. The, it changed the, a lot the as we went, that's for sure. <laughs> mhm. And uh you know, I I found a couple I found a few little typos that I missed as I was reading. But uh overall it it uh, came out really great. I uh, found a bunch when I went through and read it the very last time and I had submitted a hundred and eighty three edits to him after I read the whole thing start to finish. So uh uh-huh. yeah. So well we'll 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 work on that. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you again and Thanks. y'all have a great night. You too, yes, thank, you. thank you. Thank you there, Lisa. All right. And Michael. Thanks, thank Terry. You. Bye. Thank you, Mr. Hobbs. And thank you again, Miss <laughs> Vicky. Well, you know, Lisa, when we first started this and you first told me about it, I remember we were talking about it and I was, you know, I came in from the Paradise Lost uh thought process but you know listening to mr hobbs and uh miss vicky talk about the situation you know here's the thing my thing is this i'm kind of to the point where to accuse anybody of this is just i don't know a it's such an unspeakable and heinous thing. And to listen at Mr. Hobbs, you can, you know, even today, I, I've never spoken with Mr. Hobbs before this evening, but, you know, I don't know how he normally speaks, but just listening to him, it sounds like, you know, you can hear the pain of what mm-hmm. the past 26 years has been for him. So, you know, my heart does go out to him on those uh, matters, you know, and, you know, uh, I just, I, I even, I just personally at this point, you know, I, I me and Brad were talking the other day because we talk about this case a lot. I just wish at the end of the day whether we find out definitively it was Eccles, Baldwin, Miss Kelly, or we find out it was somebody we never even thought of. I just wish not only for the public to finally, you know, have closure, but more importantly, these families to finally have closure in what happened. Because, you know, it seemed like they did, and then the Alfred play happened, and these individuals got out. You know, it's one of them things that, unfortunately, it's kind of like I liken it to OJ. Unfortunately, it's one of those situations where I'm kind of at the point where I don't think we'll ever know. Because, obviously, Arkansas is happy to just let it sit because of the Alfred plea, which is fine. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. But... I just wish that for the public and for the family, we had something definitive to close any debate. Because I think the debate is what's doing more harm at this point than anything. 
I agree, but I, I just don't think that that's going to happen because as we've seen with John Mark Byers and now Terry Hobbs, there is a tendency to fixate on one person, pull up, dig up, make up all the dirt you can think of against them, drag their name through the mud, harass them, claim to have definitive evidence when you don't, claim that inconclusive evidence is conclusive, mm-hmm. and keep the smoke and mirrors going. And that's well, and I mean, 100% really the- all this is, smoke and mirrors. I'm going to give you an example, and, you know, I'm going to tread lightly, but, you know, I had somebody send me a uh, something to Google search in the middle of the show, and I forget what it's called. I want to say that the person told me to search Hobbs Family Secret, I want to say, and it was a story. The first hit on Google was a story where Mr. Hobbs′ own nephew uh, went after him. And said some things no. about him. And it's one of those things that's no. like, if it that isn't is true. Michael, right. that is not right. even like, true. What happened was right. well, that's what I'm two former if, friends. Wait, let me let me fill in some of the blanks here. Two former friends of Terry's nephew, Mike Jr. Right. were facing burglary charges, and Mike Jr. was a witness against them. Okay. So they came up with a story that Mike Jr. told them that his father Mm -hmm. told him that Terry Hobbs Ah. confessed to the murders. That is the alleged Hobbs family secret. Well, and what I wanted to say is what I think is just – Uh, expressly heinous about this is number one without a shadow of a doubt we do not know that Terry Hobbs did these things because as far as we know and as far as the state's concerned Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly did it but that unfortunately is not keeping people from doing these heinous things to a gentleman who has, number one, never been formally charged with this crime and things like that. So I, my heart goes out to Mr. Hobbs in a lot of ways because he has to endure these things. I mean, I couldn't imagine having a child not only being taken from me, but then to be told I caused it. Like, right? he's a strong individual. I will say that. He is. He is. Um, he's He's got his father was a pastor, so he's grown up in the church. He's got a good church that he goes to in Memphis, I believe. He's still going to Heartsong uh, Church in Memphis. So he's got, and then he's got his family. And they have provided him with a lot of love and support 
all of his life. So, yes, he is very strong. But even this, I mean, imagine, Michael, you're, you're at work minding your own business, and people show up wanting to accuse you of murder. Well, I mean, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about is one thing Customers that still... at work accuse you of murder. Oh, I can always. That's the thing, like, once again, so strong. I wouldn't be able to go into work. I would have to retire. I would have to do something mm-hmm. because I wouldn't be able to face these people because, number one, I'm not a violent person, but I can imagine I'd probably feel the need to punch the person in the mouth. But, yeah. you know, so. definitely, definitely, uh, it's just one of those things that I can only imagine the things he has to endure on not only a, you know, on a basis of those days, but the stuff he has to endure just on a daily basis, waking up. And, you know, even he said it's a struggle still, and I can understand that wholeheartedly. You know, uh, definitely – I think the one thing that people are still hung up on is still the uh, DNA. But like we had talked about before, and I don't remember whether we talked about this on air or not, but I can't wait till we get our DNA expert on there because you said that that is something that isn't as rock solid as Paradise Lost would make you believe. That isn't something that is as, you know, open and shut is what they would make you believe. So I believe right, that that exactly. will open once we have an expert say, you know, hey, well, we, this is what's we talked on, to Megan Clement a couple, a couple of months ago. We talked to DNA mm-hmm. experts. And right. the, the hairs from uh, one of the bindings and from a tree stump at the crime scene were tested. They mm-hmm. did not have roots, so that they did not have nuclear DNA. They right. had mitochondrial right. DNA. Mitochondrial DNA is passed from mother to child, unchanged across generations. So, mm-hmm. my. I have the same mitochondrial DNA as my grandmother, her mother, mm-hmm. her mother, her mother. I have the same mitochondrial DNA as my sisters, my two uncles, and my mother. As all of my cousins from my grandmother, who was one of 13 children, all the cousins from her sisters, we have identical mitochondrial DNA. You have mitochondrial DNA from your mother, grandmother, on down the line. What the most they can say about mitochondrial DNA is whether it excludes or does not exclude. But they and so the only thing that can be said about the the no, the only thing that can be said about the mitochondrial DNA from those hairs is that Hobbes and Jacoby could not be excluded. What you also have to take into account is that the mitochondrial DNA from Hobbes and Jacoby had a difference at one nucleotide on that mitochondrial DNA strand. So 
theoretically, someone with the identical mitochondrial DNA as the evidence hairs could be or could not be excluded as a source of the evidence hair. Well, and do you think this comes down to a situation where, unfortunately for Mr. Hobbs, people will never do their own research and, you know, because that sounds like something where, hey, if you do your own research, you're going to find out that just because it doesn't disqualify him doesn't mean it was him. So-called journalists Mm -hmm. journalists do not do any research because when Damien Eccles says, his DNA was at the crime scene, they right. run with it. When that's not, right. that is not what the mitochondrial DNA means. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, definitely, you know, once again, it's one of those situations where I unfortunately think you're right. I don't think that we will ever get anybody definitive, but it's something you got to hope for because not only for Mr. Hobbs, but everybody involved in this 26-year journey that we're still on with no end in sight, you know, it's still, it's a public debate that rages on, and every time somebody brings up, you know, every time somebody brings up the West Memphis Three, automatically you get people sitting on one side of the fence post and the other, and they're just going to argue, and that's all it Mm -hmm. is. It's almost... The West Memphis Three case has almost become politics. People are so deeply rooted, one side or the other, that unfortunately you don't get that dialogue where they're like, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. Well, hmm, maybe I'm wrong about this. You know, it's unfortunate that we'll never see something where they're like, you know what? It was, you know, and I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, it was that Bojangles guy. That's who it was, finally. We know for sure it was that Bojangles guy, you know. And like I said, I'm just throwing the name out there. And, you know, that's unfortunate to me. And part of the problem with that, Michael, though, is the continued claim and perception that the evidence that convicted them was not sufficient, which is not accurate. You know, once again, well, they had they had the new trial hearing set. They had their motions for new trial. They had a chance to present all of this exculpatory evidence in December of 2011. And what did they do? They went to the prosecutor with an Alfred plea idea to get out of prison without having any of their evidence. A become public record, and B, be challenged by the prosecution in the state of Arkansas. Well, and partially, I think the reason why the state of Arkansas did take that is because at that point, they're like, you know what, this is a migraine that ain't going away anytime soon. Screw it, whatever, you know, and I think he kind of almost, and I forget the gentleman who ended up uh, taking it, but I think he pretty much just threw up his hands and was like, you know what, whatever, dude. <laughs> you because, know, and yeah. I think that was pretty because much to him, the perception. The payoff to him was that all the state and all the potential federal claims would end. Right. Right. So, 
but, uh, but I'll stop you know, again, <laughs> they had they had the burden of proof, and they mm-hmm. folded instead of putting their cards on the table and winning. Right. As Kathleen Zellner is so fond of saying. <laughs> so, so I have a question, uh, a legitimate question, yeah. real quick before. I know I said I wouldn't take up any more of your evening. But let's play a little bit of dream scenario here. If if they did go back to trial and the Alfred plea never happened, and let's just say for the sake of argument, I know you're going to jump on me for saying this, but let's just say for the sake of argument that Baldwin, Miss Kelly, and Eccles somehow ended up getting off, right? They got acquitted. What does the state of Arkansas do in that point? At that point, would they reopen the investigation and go after somebody new, or do they still wipe their hands of it? You know, that's a tough question. Um, I think after twenty, well, it was eighteen years after the Alfred police say they'd gone forward and actually gotten new trials, and then been acquitted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that the state of Arkansas really could have done anything. Um, I don't think reinvestigating the case because they've been acquitted. So even if you find additional evidence that implicates them or inculpates them, Mm -hmm. you can't file charges again. Now, the other thing that a lot of people – a lot of people have a misconception about is that they could have filed some type of lawsuit and won gazillions of dollars from the state of Arkansas. Arkansas does not have a wrongful conviction statute. You would have to okay. prove negligence. Okay. So they would have to prove Boy, or malicious prosecution that right. the district attorney knew they were innocent and pursued the charges anyway. And even though they make those claims, that is absolutely not the case. The evidence was sufficient. People don't believe it was, but right. that doesn't change. I know you follow this case strongly. And one question I've never been able to get an answer to. I remember when the Alfred plea first happened, because I was actually in work at that at work. I was uh, at that point I was uh, delivering medical supplies for the VA, so I was listening to the radio all day in my work van. And I remember uh, that Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin had both had all three said that they were going to continue to fight for their innocence. They just did this to be able to do so on the outside. Uh, has anything ever has anything ever been filed since the Alfred plea? Or have both have all three just said, you know what, screw it, we're out, whatever? The only things that have happened since the Alfred plea have been media claims of exculpatory Mm -hmm. evidence, continued testing, new evidence. Uh, Terry Hobbs is going to be arrested any minute now. 
Um, you know, Memphis police are sending a SWAT team after Terry Hobbs. It's been all talk mm-hmm. and all bullshit and not a single motion has been filed in Crittenden County, Craighead County, or Corning. I can't remember the county. It was another C. Clay County. Not a single thing has been filed in any court in the state of Arkansas or in federal court for that matter. Okay. Now, with the way the Alfred plea, though, and when I was asking that question, it actually dawned on me. With the way the Alfred plea is set up, they pretty much said, hey, yeah, y'all have enough evidence to convict me. Uh, but I'm going to take this basically, and I, somehow it's going to release me. Because it's in doesn't my best that, interest. Yes. Doesn't that, at that point, kill any case they would ever have to possibly get acquitted legally? Yeah, it does. I was thinking that. I was like, wait, how could they? They would have to prove. They pretty much caught to it. They would have to file something and prove fraud or okay. uh, misrepresentation or something that led them to take the Alfred plea, ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, I, you know, it's, it can be done. It's not easy to do. Uh, but given the fact that Eccles' attorneys came up with the idea mm-hmm. and got Baldwin and Miss Kelly's attorneys on board because another thing people don't realize is Jesse Miss Kelly had a totally separate trial. So all of the right. claimed issues about Eccles and Baldwin's trial would have done no good at, at all for Miss Kelly. Right. Which Miss Kelly's been in and out of prison since Anyway, hasn't he? Well, he was arrested in 2017 on some misdemeanor charges. I've I've read on Facebook that there was a felony somewhere. I want to uh, say he got a DWI at some point recently too. Yeah. And by recently, I mean um, like the last three years. That I I think it would be the last year that he got the DWI. Yeah. Um, now, depending on how that goes, that's a felony. Mm-hmm. So he may be looking at violation of his suspended imposition of sentence order, and he may look be looking at going back into ADC for 21 years. I was about to say, now, are they under any sort of parole where if Damien does something stupid – is he supervised, basically, I guess is the question I'm They're asking. not. They have, have no supervision, and Scott mm-hmm. Ellington can't even be bothered to make sure that they're gainfully employed. Um, they were – Eccles and Baldwin were each allowed to leave the state of Arkansas. Um, mm-hmm. So Ellington's not really enforcing the, the suspended imposition, although I imagine if they did commit a felony – whether in Arkansas or another state, I would imagine that that would be, uh, it's called suspended imposition of sentence, and it was 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
It doesn't expire okay. until August of 2021. Okay. Okay. Well, Lisa, before Blog Talk cuts us off, I guess we might want to go ahead and wrap things <laughs> up. But it's definitely yeah. been an amazing, honestly. It's opened my eyes. You know, I came in with Terry with a lot of uh, a lot of preconceived notions. Uh, the first time mm-hmm. I heard him speak uh, earlier tonight, I was like, man, he don't exactly sound like this crazy dude I was expecting. You know, this crazy angry Correct. dude I was expecting. But uh, you know, once again, am I saying that I, I 100% all of a sudden think that the three are guilty? No. I just, it's gotten me to the point now where I'm just like, dude, I just want for everybody involved, I just want somebody, you know, something guaranteed, open, shut. This is what happened, mm-hmm. just for everybody involved to be able to heal. But like you said, it's very, very unlikely that will ever happen. Correct. And you rarely have that in any criminal case because you can go back and hindsight pick apart any criminal case in, you know, that you want to. Um, And hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit with Commander Garen in June. Mm -hmm. He's our former homicide detective, now runs a crime lab. Okay. With New Orleans Police Department. So we'll talk to him in, I guess, June 18th. So um, are you ready for me to close her out, put a bow on it? Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Monday, May 27, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for a discussion of the lethal injection challenges raised in state and federal courts by inmates who've been condemned to death. We'll also talk about the controversial executions of Joseph Wood in Arizona, Clayton Lockett in Oklahoma, and Dennis McGuire in Ohio. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe. Good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.